Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, we continue our coverage into the Atira Housing Society with a report detailing mismanagement and conflict of interest rules not being followed should its leader resign. Plus, we discuss the ABCs of school marks. Why are letter grades being scrapped for grade 8 9 students in BC? And the Park Board approves the lethal removal of Canadian geese from Vancouver as the iconic birds wreak havoc in our parks. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the Atira Housing Society. Today, the organization's leadership uh, said they are standing behind their CEO, Janice uh, Abbott, even though an investigation found Atira received preferential treatment because BC Housing's former CEO was Abbott's husband, Shane Ramsey. Mr. Ramsey sent text messages telling staff to direct grants to Atira, which was a violation of conflict of interest rules. Uh, In total, Atira received $120 million in funding since 2018. Now, the report, which was released yesterday, says there were 24 occasions, 24 occasions where Mr. Ramsey communicated with BC Housing employees about uh, Atira, a clear violation. In July of 2022, Premier David Eby fired the entire board at BC Housing. Well, today we learned BC Housing's uh, BC Housing Board Chair Alan Seckel sent a letter to Atira asking for $1.9 million to be returned to BC Housing as the financial review, uh, which uh, came yesterday, as I said, determined there was a surplus in 2020 and 2021. And keep in mind, BC Housing uh, is a public agency. These are your dollars. Uh, Mr. Seckel requested a renewal in leadership at Atira. It was as well, meaning it's time to clean house. Think about that for a second. Now, they got a response from Atira. Uh, no one on camera, no one doing any interviews, but there was a statement. I'm going to read it to you. It says, quote, in light of the there being no findings of wrongdoing by anyone on his executive, Atira's board will not terminate its senior executive team or any of its members on request from BC Housing uh, with one day's notice. Now, today, Premier David Eby spoke to our Simi Sarah uh, in regards to the leadership at Atira and how he came to some of his decisions. Uh, He was specifically asked whether or not the CEO uh, should be stepping down. That would be uh, Janice Abbott. Take a listen to his comments. Our belief that there is a need for a change in leadership at Atira because of, frankly, uh, the disappointing response to what certainly I see as a crisis of government confidence in that organization um, and their willingness to follow the basic rules of the agreements that they enter into with us. Um, And uh, unfortunately, their press release uh, does not inspire confidence in me that that shift has taken place. In fact, it says that uh, that they have total confidence in how things have been going at Atira. Um, anyone reading the report would not have that confidence. I don't think most dis- uh, most taxpayers would disagree uh, with uh, Premier Eby. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Jen St. Dennis. She is a reporter with the TIE and has been covering this issue for many years. In fact, I would say probably the reporter who has been on top of this issue from day one. Uh, Jen, thank you for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I guess the first question to ask is, since you've been covering this for a very long time, do you feel vindicated after yesterday's report? Um, I'm not sure vindicated is the right word, but it's definitely, um, I think it's gratifying to all of the BC housing staff who came forward to talk to me about their concerns. I was hearing a lot of comments from the people who live in a tier operated buildings, people, the frontline workers who live in these, who work in these buildings and have 
you know, Franklin had a lot of safety concerns, a lot of concerns about understaffing, um, low pay, that kind of thing. They were all really happy to see these problems finally being talked about openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you first hear of these problems, without divulging obviously sources and information that you, mm-hmm. you shouldn't, but when did you first hear about um, Atira and some of the challenges that were there? Yeah, I started just getting messages from, uh, it was frontline staff initially, and it was just quite a lot of staff coming forward to me with these concerns, um, with this one housing provider, which was unusual. You know, you hear, you hear complaints about supportive housing all the time, but this is sort of an unusual number of complaints. And so initially I was just writing, you know, from the point of view of tenants who live in these buildings, frontline workers who are just kind of concerned about how the buildings were being run, um, in April 2022, um, one of an uh, Atira-operated building, the Belmoral, or sorry, the, the Winters Hotel burned down. Tragically, two tenants died. So I was writing a lot about fire safety issues, about problems there. But then at some point, it just started to shift. And yeah, these former BC housing staffers just started to speak out. And what they were telling me was quite shocking. What were they, in what they were saying, was it a question of just how specific buildings were being managed or they're saying there's a deeper systemic leadership challenge at Atira? Yeah, what they were actually, what the whistleblowers who had formerly worked at BC Housing were telling me was that for years, like since 2010, when, when um, Shane Ramsey, the former CEO, and Janice Abbott, the CEO of Atira, were first married, that since that time, you know, there was supposed to be this conflict of interest protocol in place, it was written out, but they were telling me that it had never been followed, that Shane had just um, repeatedly gotten involved in discussions, had, had told people this meeting never happened, like took steps to conceal what he was doing. Um, And we actually, for months, we actually weren't able to report it because all we had were these anonymous whistleblowers who did not want to come forward with their names. We were finally able to report it when we got some documentation, some text messages that showed Shane corresponding with one employee repeatedly mentioning a Tiro project. And then another email chain from even longer ago. so, yeah, it's really been going on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned 2010, which, of course, uh, was an era when the B.C. Liberals uh, were in government. The NDP formed government in 2017. This broader issue, Mr. Ramsey was CEO for two decades. Uh, so he's, uh, you know, sometimes say the ministers change, governments change, the, the, the bureaucracy doesn't sometimes. And this is a classic example of that. Um, this issue today, do you leave this at the feet of the NDP or is it both governments in this case that have allowed this culture to build uh, in regards to Atira? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I actually think it was both governments um, just not adequately responding to this. There were there were multiple complaints. There were BC Housing staffers, quite senior staffers, who were bringing this to the attention of the board chair in about 2011, um, and that person ended up being fired or pushed out, basically. And that's kind of what would happen. And I think that's the crux of why. It maybe took so long for this to come out um, was that there did tend to be this culture of fear and silence at the organization because people who pushed back tended to be punished. Um, and so I think it sort of set an example. But I don't really think that excuses the kind of inaction on the part of housing ministers, previous housing ministers like Rich Coleman with the BC Liberals. Um, I've been told that Selena Robinson was told about these problems in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that B- that David Eby did get a lot of criticism from BC United, which is the new name for the BC Liberals, um, yesterday in the House. But what I've heard from the BC housing staffers, the whistleblowers, is that it seems like David Eby was the first person to actually do something about this by 
um, commissioning this audit. So you can take that for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, the news from today with this letter uh, where uh, Mr. Shackle, the, the present board, is asking for $1.9 million to be returned to BC Housing because of the surplus. Uh, Atira at this point saying no, and also in regards to the broader question that they aren't uh, going to at this point look at terminating in their senior executive team. Let's start with the $1.9 million first. Mm. What is the story behind that $1.9 million in regards to the surplus? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not absolutely 100 percent sure that this is that these numbers are all adding up. But the way I'm reading the report is that there was this um, single room occupancy hotel that Atira wanted to buy in about 2021, I think, mm-hmm. 303 Columbia in Vancouver, um, and they went to BC Housing and they had um, an offer to buy it, and they ended up um, getting BC Housing approval um, to do this, and they would have an operating agreement with BC Housing. And they put in $2 million of their own money, but it turned out that that $2 million was actually um, part of a couple of like budget year surpluses. And they're a nonprofit. They get money from BC Housing. They're not supposed to keep their surpluses. If they have a budget surplus and they can't spend the money they're given to operate their buildings, they're supposed to return it to BC Housing. Um, and Atira has had for years, has had problems with the late financial reporting. And sometimes it takes years to kind of resolve, like, did they actually have a surplus? Did they not? So, um, so when the EY auditors were looking through this, they actually brought this to the attention of BC Housing. And they said, you know, they're not supposed to do this. We think they're in violation of their operating agreement. Um, BC Housing ended up telling them that they, telling Atira that they didn't approve that $2 million, um, and then Atira said that it was going to have a really hard time meeting its payroll um, mm-hmm. and paying its workers. And so what actually happened was that BC Housing staff ended up um, giving them a, giving Atira a grant of $1.4 million. And so I think, just from my reading of the report, I think that that demand for $1.9 million back probably has something to do with that, that surplus problem, mm-hmm. just misusing the surplus. Um, but Atira is refusing to return it. At this point, yeah. Now, yes, exactly. We are speaking to Jen St. Dennis, a reporter with the TIE. We're talking about, of course, uh, the report that came out yesterday, which basically said that uh, uh, the CEO of BC Housing uh, was uh, sending text messages telling staff to direct grants to Atira Housing, which, a vi- which was a violation of conflict of interest rules. Um, Jen, let's talk a little bit about the other issue, which is, of course, Premier E on on CKNW today and and uh, he alluded this to to this yesterday as well which is specifically specifically that um, the CEO of Atira uh, Ms. Abbott uh, Janice Abbott needs to step down uh, why do you think there is based on that letter I was just reading earlier why do you think there is a pushback on the executive team perhaps being or a shuffle on on the reshuffle at the executive team level why are they fighting this at this point well I think it's because Janice Abbott has just been so central to this organization Um, she has been CEO since 1992 Atira started out as this organization that ran um, transition houses for women fleeing violence and that's still the, the core mission of the organization. Their mission is actually to end violence against women. Um, now, under they've really grown over that time, and they've started to become like a nonprofit that develops new housing. And um, under another, under Atira Property Management, which is like a subsidiary, they also operate um, a lot of SRO hotels for both men and women. 
So they do a lot of different things. And she has just been kind of steadily there for that entire time. And, you know, my sense is that she has sort of built up her team around her and probably has um, pretty strong relationships with many of the board members who are also all women, I'm sure all very committed to, to that cause of ending violence against women. And I assume have pretty strong relationships with her as well. How did we get here in your mind when it comes to this organization and what we heard about? Uh, 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 both the CEO of, of Atira and of BC Housing, the previous CEO. Um, it, was this uh, uh, an issue where, whether it be BC Liberal or the NDP, that, look, uh, ultimately we need to build social housing and a lot of it. And as long as these folks are part of that and they're doing it, uh, they were willing to look the other way when it comes to certain governance issues? I, it's a little hard for me to speculate. I really prefer to kind of just go with what I know and go with facts. But mm-hmm. I do think that both of these people were have been very successful in their way. Um, Shane Ramsey, I think, was perceived as a very charismatic and um, effective CEO of BC Housing. Um, and Janice Abbott as well, she was able to kind of grow this organization quite a huge amount um, and and just really add different services. So... I'm, I really can't, you know, we, when we look at the board of Atira too, it has to be said that there have been some political connections. Um, mm-hmm. The mayor, former um, mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, his wife was briefly on Atira's board in like between 2021 and 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that MLA Bruce Ralston's wife is also on the board of Atira. So it's, it's an organization that, you know, in the housing sector, you often find these, these people who are heads of these organizations are great connectors. Like, they're great at, at forming relationships. That's really a part of their job. So it's not surprising that they were able to kind of, you know, form relationships um, with decision makers. Uh, where will you be looking next broadly uh, in regards to your reporting on this issue? Uh, I mean, it seems like a bit of a stalemate in the sense that the government wants uh, Ms. Abbott and the executive team to step down with new leadership. Um, where do you see this going? So I'm going to be drilling down into one particular um, property purchase that that Atira made in, um, I think, early 2022 is when it got approved, and that was 303 Columbia. That's the, the property deal that I was talking about earlier. Um, I've actually been sitting on a big trove of FOI documents, and I'm just hoping that this will sort of shed some light on how these deals kind of tend to be made. You know, housing is such a pressing issue. Homelessness is such a pressing issue. And we want to solve it and we want to solve it quickly. And I think this, just delving into this one particular deal deal will give us a lot of insight into the pressures that these housing operators are under and that BC Housing is under and maybe how some of these decisions are being made um, as as they really just try to, to solve this problem. And the question is, you know, are they really solving it mm-hmm. in my mind? Jen, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Well, today, Vancouver City Council gave the go-ahead for a grant uh, to help revitalize City's uh, Chinatown. $387,000 was granted. The money will go to four different organizations, uh, and it is uh, done in the context of what they call Uplifting Chinatown Action Plan. That's a plan that they announced a while ago. Uh, They want to spend in total up to $2 million to help revitalize the area, and this $387,000 will go to four specific organizations. Organizations. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, today's announcement is Jordan Eng, president of the Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Jordan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. 
what does this money mean, the $387,000 in new grant funding? How far will that go uh, to deal with the challenges that Chinatown's been going through? Well, this is p- part of the uh, the larger original um, uh, motion to council earlier in the year for about $2 million. Uh, and this is uh, just a portion of it where uh, it's actually carved out of that amount. And this is the actual implementation of, of, of that original uh, funding. So uh, we've got uh, money towards uh, a safe walk program uh, to, to uh, clean up the neighborhood in terms of graffiti removal. Um, so it's it's really a good news story for for the neighborhood after the last three four years uh, uh, going through the pandemic. Uh, you were just mentioning the Safe Walk pilot program. Can you explain that program to me? Well, what we're uh, you know there has been concerns of safety uh, amongst seniors and and uh, you know young people coming t- down to the, the community schools and and uh, in the neighborhood. So uh, what? Uh, you know, we've seen this in, in, for example, in universities where if uh, someone is feeling unsafe walking within, to, to, you know, to the within campus or to, to their vehicle at night or during the day, uh, you know, this is uh, modeled after that sort of a program to allow people to, to come into the neighborhood safely because there's an issue of uh, perception of safety. Uh, that pro- I mean, just having that program alone, I guess, highlights the challenges of Chinatown, doesn't it? Well, it, it does, um, but I think it's, uh, you know, we, we've gone a long way in the last, uh, last few months with the new uh, uh, mayor and council. They, they've really focused uh, into, in Chinatown. They've really heard our, 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 our cries for help, and, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're able to turn the corner, and, and we're optimistic. Have things, uh, have you seen any noticeable improvement at this point? Yes, most, most definitely. I mean, they've already started with the... Uh, uh, the cleanup uh, uh, from uh, city engineers in terms of the streets, the sidewalks, um, you know, feces cleanup. Uh, so, you know, those are, are visual uh, markers that people, you know, that have turned people away, that have created this perception of uh, the, the neighborhood not being safe. So, uh, merchants are, are are feeling optimistic, and uh, and uh, the BIA is, is is there to support, and that's you know what our role is is to. Do you think to get us ready for summer? Do you think the two million dollars that's been promised in total will do the job, or do you think there's going to be more help needed afterwards? Because the challenges are, are immediate for Chinatown, but there are also longer term challenges that it's been dealing with for that the community's been dealing with for a longer time. Yeah, I mean the the, the two million, uh, even though it was uh, you know uh, branded as a as a chi- uplift Chinatown. It was also uh, for other parts of the kind of the downtown east side, uh, Gastown, Strathcona neighborhood. So uh, it was uh, for, you know, our, our uh, general uh, uh, BIA areas. Uh, no, this is really, a, I think, a first step. I think, uh, you know, there are still the, the mental health issues, the opioid crisis. Those are, you know, we can't hide behind those and, and, and the issues that, that, you know, they've caused the neighborhood. Uh, but uh, you know we're happy to see, or we're glad to see that the uh, provincial government and the federal government have have also stepped in and and recognized the importance of this neighborhood and, and provided funding and and supports in the other areas besides just the you know what you see visually. So, mm-hmm. who are you trying to attract back? Is it tourists? Uh, is it um, uh, the local community here, the broader community, uh, or is it you know more members of the Chinese Canadian community that you want to bring back? Uh, I mean, who are you trying to attract? 
Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny. I, I would say all of those people. I mean, Chinatown in itself is almost like a city within a city. Uh, you know, we have our seniors that live in the neighborhood. We have um, families that come into the neighborhood uh, on, on weekends. We have the young people that are coming to, to the nightclubs or to the bars and, and the restaurants that have now, um, you know, they, they've become, you know, some of the best in the, in the country. So, uh, and we, and of course, we're, we're, we've got the uh, cruise se- uh, ship uh, season uh, happening now, and uh, uh, we, we want to bring those people back in as well. But, you know, it, the underlying community uh, it, uh, serves uh, a, a large senior Chinese property uh, population, whether it's senior, uh, low-income seniors in the neighborhood mm-hmm. or those outside as well. So, um, you know, it's their home, it's their community center, uh, so to speak, and, and uh, it's where they have come from, from the, the, his- the cultural history of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I can understand tourists, I can understand local communities. Uh, one of the reasons I asked was when you look at the Chinese-Canadian community, it's obviously very much spread out, of course, throughout Metro Vancouver, but so many uh, members of the Chinese community could also go shopping in, in communities like Richmond and many others where you have brand newer shops, indoor uh, shop, mall shopping malls, essentially, uh, air-conditioned shopping malls. It's, it, can Chinatown still compete for that Chinese consumer still? You know, you know Chinatown uh, is different from, from the malls and, uh, and, and, and other areas, mm-hmm. uh, even within the city. It's... Uh, you know, we're the heart and soul of the, the Chinese community. We have our uh, our uh, family association buildings, which a lot of the seniors go to play mahjong. They go and uh, visit friends. So there's a community aspect besides just the shopping that, that brings them into the neighborhood. So uh, for, during the pandemic, a lot of the family uh, were saying to, the, to their elders, don't go to Chinatown or, or just don't go out at all. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was pretty devastating. The, the neighborhood was pretty gutted from, uh, you know, the population that typically comes down to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Jordan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about the ABCs of school marks. Now, last week, the Ministry of Education announced changes to high school report cards. Students in grade 8 and 9 will no longer be given letter grades and percentage uh, percentages for marks starting next year. Instead, students in their first two years of high school will be given a description on a four-point provincial proficiency scale to indicate how they're doing in class. So instead of ABCs, uh, you would get emerging developing, proficient, or extending. Uh, letter grades have already, of course, been phased out at the elementary school level. Joining me, to talk, joining me now to talk a little bit about letter grades versus, versus proficiency scales is Clint Johnson, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Clint, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on, Doug. I saw this, uh, the, the news story last week. We were so busy with other news stories, we couldn't get to this issue. But I think it's an important one and one that I think we need a, a broad conversation about. First of all, are you supportive of, of not having grades for grade 8 and 9? Uh, yeah, we're, we're supportive of the changes that have come about in the reporting order uh, in terms of moving to that proficiency scale. Um, our members have been involved in that work and in developing um, the new reporting order uh, along with others in the, in the system, obviously. So we are supportive of the changes that are coming forward. Um, 
there's issues we have about whether they're going to be properly supported and, and the educational pieces and the training is going to be there to make sure everybody understands it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're supportive of the changes for sure. Yeah. Why is this better? I mean, we're, we always make changes to make things better. Why is this better? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it's really important, I think, to to make sure there's a clear um, clear understanding of the difference between assessment and reporting because this order is literally just about reporting. It just says, how do we report out um, where a student is at to the, uh, to the student and to their parents. That's what this says. It doesn't say anything about changing how we actually assess and understand where a student is at. So I think that's important because it can get conflated about we're going to change how we decide where a student's at, and that's not going to change. Um, so I think this is, is better in that hopefully it gives parents a, a contextual understanding that learning is on a spectrum. And I know people are used to letter grades, um, but, you know, you go from a B to an A. Well, that's a 1% difference, half a percent difference. Um, so I think uh, suggesting that the current system we have is ideal it isn't true or accurate. I think it's just the one we understand. So obviously there's going to be some discomfort when we change. Mm-hmm. And, and and correct me, if, maybe educate me, correct me if I'm wrong, but educate me on this. Mm-hmm. In some school districts, they're already doing this, but they may have um, – uh, maybe not have a grade, but they'll have use a, these these skills of emerging, developing, proficient, or extending, but they also may have a number. You know, your your son or daughter is proficient, hence they have a 79% in the class. Others may already be there, or the other ones uh, in other schools, are they maybe already doing the old-fashioned way, which is grades plus a letter? It's, it's sort of all over, is it not? Yeah, and I, I appreciate you raising that. It is a little bit all over right now, and that's one of the things that we've been concerned about and talking to the ministry about is that it, it, the more there's differences across problems like that, the more confusing it can be for parents who understandably talk to friends and family around the province. So um, we'd like it to be uniform. You know, we think this is a good way to report out, and we think that if there's proper education, they've produced some um, documents for parents to understand better already the ministry, which is good. Um, and then when everybody is on board and understands it well, uh, the ideal place, obviously, is for parents and teachers to be getting together and talking about this, mm-hmm. explaining the scale and understanding what it means for their child. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to parents? Say, look, uh, you're, we're, we're educating these kids and getting them ready for, for life in a very competitive world. And if a child is given a, a C plus and they have 70%, they know they have to work harder uh, to get to that B or to that A, that it just, uh, you know, it, it, it gets them ready for the real world because the real world isn't about, you know, emerging, developing, proficient, or extending. It's about, hey, you're an A employee, you're a C-plus employee, we're going to hire the A employee. That there is, there is a pecking order in life, that there is competition in life. It's not easy. An achievement is measured, uh, sometimes sub- subjectively, but it is measured, and we need to be readying these kids for the real world well I, there's a few pieces there that i would i wouldn't necessarily agree with everything you've said there certainly can be competition in the world but i don't think everything is graded on a, a scale that's as cut and dry as an a and b and c and i would suggest that there's also a pretty diverse range of skills needed for a child to be clear we're not preparing them just for the work world that is not the goal of education we're preparing them to function in the world as a whole which requires a lot of skills that are not uh, a b c type of skills, you know, how do they manage themselves, how do they manage their relationships, how are they going to interact with others in society and and ensure that they are uh, secure, safe and comfortable and happy individuals. Uh, You know, you get to workplaces and that can be competitive. Um, But likewise, uh, you know, you just mentioned there's an A, B or C employee. Well, how do we measure that? 
you know, when you're hiring someone, I've interviewed a lot of individuals, and um, other than the grades they may have gotten in some school, uh, there's not a lot that actually is A, B, or C. You speak to an individual, you look at their experience, and you make a, an overall understanding of who that person is and what skills they bring and how they'll fit in. Um, so in, in a sense, I would argue that this is actually more reflective of that, is that we're looking at the whole student, um, seeing what their skills are, seeing where they need to continue growing, uh, and seeing how they can fit into the world in a way that's good for them and good for society. Mm-hmm. Now, this is for the first two years of high school. Um, would you like to see this uh, eventually move towards grade 10, 11, and 12 then? Uh, yeah, I think it's safe to say we, we feel this is a good way to uh, to report out and that it could move into 10, 11, and 12. Um, you know, there's an interface with post-secondary institutions right now that uh, can is a little bit difficult. It would require a lot of conversation about how to make that work. Um, it does work in some other jurisdictions already, so we know it can be done. But uh, we think it's a good way to report out and that it would be good to have it move into the 10, 11, and 12. Um, as long as we can make sure that there's continuity so that students uh, still know where they're at and institutions can accept them and, and support them and help them get the education at the post-sec educa- institution if they're going there that they need. Right now, though, post-secondary institutions are still the traditional ABCD percentage. I mean, they may look at experience, they may look at extracurricular activities when they want, when students are applying for post-secondary institutions. But right now, the system, I'm going to assume, is not geared towards uh, the proficiency uh, 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 scale. No, you're, you'd be correct in that. Primarily, they still rely on those types of assessments. Although you've, you've mentioned a valuable thing, which is they are moving to a more holistic view of a student, mm-hmm. um, which I think is good because uh, we all need to understand that different individuals have different strengths and some people don't show uh, how good they are at something in a very structured uh, school setting. That's not everyone's forte. Even though they may have the skill sets, it might not be where they can show it and how they can show it. Um, so they are moving to much more looking at a whole student and what they bring and, and how they will be able to help them uh, get their education. But right now they do rely quite a bit on those grades, and that's the piece that would need some work to make sure it flowed smoothly. When it comes to uh, elementary school and grade in 8-9, moving forward, where does BC fit in regards to what the rest of Canada does uh, and what other states do in the U.S.? You sorry. So you're asking in terms of elementary versus high school. Type or, of, no, just uh, element. We're moving to this proficiency scale for grade eight nine. Yeah. What are other yeah. provinces or other states doing in regards to grading students? Oh, I wouldn't want to speak definitively on the U.S. for sure. And and frankly, I'll be blunt. I don't I don't necessarily want to compare a lot to the U.S. education system these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I know across Canada there are very different uh, practices going on. I know there's jurisdictions, uh, parts of Ontario and such, that are moving like we are um, to this type of reporting out. And I think it's really important to keep saying that the reporting out, not the assessing. That's not changing. Um, but I know there's other areas that are sticking with a much more traditional as well. So this is tending to be the way that um, education is moving in general. Uh, but you're right that it's still a mixed bag across Canada. And, I, and my, my questions also come as a, as, a, as a dad of a grade 9 student uh, uh, who, of course, <laughs> was, went through the school system when, when we were doing it the old-fashioned way. So even when I'm looking yeah. at some of these uh, proficiency skills, I, which my son's school has, I, I, I have to really make sure I'm paying attention to make sure exact, get a good sense of exactly where uh, uh, my son is at. And, and, but also it means you know, making sure you're interacting with their individual teachers and talking to them and, and I got to tell you, so far they've been really great to deal with and 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 been very helpful uh, in regards to giving you a sense of of, of where 
uh, you know, our son is, and I'm sure others, other kids are as well. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a different way of look at things, looking at things. That's for sure. And I guess we, as parents have to get used to it. We're, we're almost there, but I think eight and nine is, is, I guess, the, is the, is the new frontier. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the way you've put that. And uh, also, by the way, I appreciate that you're having good inter interactions with your kids, teachers. That's great. I have five children. Uh, my third one's finishing this year. Two are done and two are still in school. This will affect one of my children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it. You've really hit it on the head is that the actual value and understanding your student is, is interacting with their teacher uh, when you can and asking questions and having conversations because even, you know, we all like that quick glance. Oh, I get a uh, get a report card, it's all B's and A's, uh, maybe a C plus. Uh, they're all fine, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not always the case. So the more conversation we can have um, with their teacher, uh, and hopefully that's what this does, is gets people to learn. And I, it is going to be a learning curve for parents. There's no doubt about that. But yeah. I'm confident they can, and I'm confident at the end of the day it's going to lead to a deeper and better understanding of the, the strengths of their child and how to support them in the areas that they do need some support in. So, yeah. Clint, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jess. Really appreciate having me on. Travel around Vancouver and you can find geese almost anywhere, especially in our parks. Well, many of these geese found in Vancouver do not migrate. They are known as residence geese, resident geese. Now, according to the city of Vancouver, resident geese uh, feed on grass and use lawns, sports fields, golf courses, shorelines and water bodies as their habitat, of course, resulting in disruption of park activities and a lot of damage to these species as well. Well, last night, no surprise to anybody, the Vancouver Park Board announced a lethal removal plan to control the Canada goose population here in our city. Now, throughout the day, we've been getting a lot of calls from our listeners on the issue of uh, the park board's uh, vote last night and the bigger issue of Canadian geese in the city and what to do with them. One caller uh, called in today and talked about his altercation uh, with a goose. Take a listen. I was at a golf course a couple years ago, went to get my ball down by the water and literally almost tripped over a goose protecting its babies, didn't know it was there. And just like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, it bit me in the penis. And I don't know if any of you have been bitten by a goose in the penis. It hurts. It is very unpleasant. So I know that goose was just protecting its fuzzy little babies. But, uh, man, that I won't be sorry to see that goose. I want to thank that gentleman for that PSA. He was so earnest. I don't know if you've ever been bitten in the, you know. He was so earnest when he said that. All right, well, joining me now to discuss last night's vote is Scott Jensen, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Hello, Scott. Hello, Jazz. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this guy sounds like he golfs as well as I do. I'm always by the water as well. Normally, it's in the water. Well, there you go. Well, you know what? Uh, how bad is it beyond this gentleman's story there? Like, uh, you must have been hearing from a lot of residents and taxpayers in Vancouver in regards to the problem. Yes, we have. And and it, it's such a concern that, that it did come to the board uh, last night. Uh, you know, we've seen an 18% increase in the population year over year. Um, and so... 
you know, this board had a, had a choice to either uh, continue with the status quo, which would see this, this population continue to grow, um, or to address the problem. And, and we decided that it's best to address the problem and not to, to send this uh, down the road for another board to deal with at, at a later date. You said there was 18% growth. Uh, my understanding is about 2,200 geese in Vancouver in 2022. That's the count. Uh, yes. And they're growing significantly. Correct me if I'm wrong here. At the rate they're growing, we could have 10,000 geese in the city by 2030 from the 2,200 that we have now? That's correct. All right. And again, you know, our landscapers and our architects have created these great parks across the city that are just ideal for... Um, for the, the survival of, of these geese. And so, you know, part of the plan that, that we uh, approved last night is, is to change kind of some of that, uh, the landscaping in and around some of these parks so that it, it's not so inviting for geese. You know, the geese can sit in the middle of these fields and, and see, um, so they know that they're safe. They know that if a predator is coming, they can get out, there's water nearby. Uh, so there's going to be some uh methods used to to change that environment for them and, and hopefully they will find another place that's a lot more suitable for them other than you know the downtown and the surrounding neighborhoods now you talked about uh the 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 broader environment uh, what other things can they can the staff do uh, in regards to reducing the population uh, i've heard of things like i think is, is it called addling i hope i'm pronouncing that properly yes uh, so i've learned that myself over the years <laughs> <laughs> now will they be will they'll there's still i mean there still will be potentially lethal removal right yes and that's a last uh, resort and, and certainly it's it's not ideal for for any of the commissioners to to kind of uh, be the, the the killer of of of, of animals. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to try all the methods first, and we believe that if if that's done um, and done in a very aggressive manner, that uh, we can see decrease in the population. Um, unfortunately, if if there isn't that decrease, you know, there there needs to be next steps taken. Uh, there is a lot of um, a lot of geese in the city. It is really affecting the uh, enjoyment of our of our parks and our recreational spaces uh, by our residents. And you know they they've reached out to us as commissioners and said you know we need this addressed. So um, you know we are going to start with education. You know you know people need to understand that uh, you know they should not be feeding the, these birds. Uh, it's interesting that uh, so many issues that come across our our around our board um, are issues that can be solved through education. Uh, I will remind you. Your listeners, today uh, we have a really great weekend coming ahead of us, and I want people to pack in and pack out their garbage and, and do their best. But uh, uh, education is so important, and that goes to our, our geese feeding. Uh, please don't, and uh, let them uh, get their food naturally. And ideally, that will force them to go somewhere where there's a better food supply. Now we've we've talking we've talked about uh, switching out viable goose eggs uh, from the nest from with frozen duds. I guess that's the addling. That's what they're called. Among yeah. the other options uh, we we read about today was the gooseinator. It's a machine used by the city of Denver to chase geese using a remote control uh, from areas where they have high impact. We looked into that today. Take, take a listen to this very short report from uh, Denver in regards to the gooseinator. Well, the Goosenator will soon be busy at Wash Park. The remote-controlled glider is painted with a scary cartoon face and skims around the park, scaring off the geese. Several people who live around the park are complaining about those birds, saying they keep multiplying and goose poop is everywhere. You can hardly get this off the sidewalk. It actually stains the sidewalk. It's, it's a mess. It gets in the grass. And I used to like geese, but it's not fun anymore. 
Uh, one of the other things, uh, Scott, is of course the budget for all of this uh, is, is two seventy five to three seventy five, three hundred seventy five thousand dollars is proposed. Is there a cheaper way to do this? Um, not, not that was presented to us. And, and, and again, like this uh, is a big problem that, that requires a, uh, a dedicated solution. And so uh, the amount of money that's being allocated is, is hopefully um, not going to reach that, that top end piece. But um, that being said, this is, this is good money being spent to solve a very um, solvable problem. Uh, again, when we have a field that come offline, we're looking at $100,000 per field to get that back up and, and operational. Uh, we're also looking at uh, loss revenue from that field not being able to be used. And again, we're not talking about just one field. We're talking about fields across the city. So um, Certainly, this is a lot of money, uh, but uh, when we look at the expenses that the, the city has to incur to mitigate against these issues or to, to rectify the damage, um, this, is, this is going to be a cost savings in the end. Is this a, a, a sort of a normal thing in other cities as well across Canada that you've heard of? Or, and are there any sort of, are they using other methods to, to, to deal with the issue? Well, obviously, the example in Denver showcases that this is a, a consistent problem across. And, you know, for us, you know, our, our, our municipal neighbours uh, have the same issue. And that's, you know, you know we, we can't just kind of haze them out of our neighbourhoods and move them into Burnaby. Burnaby is going to be doing the exact same. So there is a community uh, uh, municipality uh, approach to this. And, uh, but certainly this is a problem that uh, is, is found in other cities. And I have to say, that, what did you call it, the goosinator? The goosinator. <laughs> yes, I've got my own personal goosinator, and that's, that's my dog, Benson Dubois. And every time we go out, he's always looking to uh, you know, scare the geese off, and normally I'm holding them on his lead and, and making sure he doesn't go after them. Um, but you know, you know, the dogs that we have in our parks are, are, are ways that uh, you know, can mitigate some of these birds being in our, in our spaces. I know our dog park nearby doesn't have any geese in them at all, but uh, nearby the other parks are, are a number of them. So we might need to pull out the goosinator if we can borrow it from, from Denver. But uh, I'm going to let staff deal with that. I do think it would be an amazing job driving that thing around or using the remotes. But, um, you know, we, we, we do it is kind of a, a fun uh, thing to think about, uh, even in spite of, you know, the idea that, that um, you know, we have to move these geese out of the way. Uh, but if it can be done in a, in a safe, humane manner, um, I think that uh, we can uh, return our parks uh, to a much more cleaner, safer environment for our residents of Vancouver. Scott, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for making time. And thanks for playing the clip for me. Enjoyed it. <laughs> that is a special one, that's for sure. Today, the Washington Post reported that when students returned to school during the pandemic, educators quickly saw a change in their cell phone habits uh, in and around the pandemic. More than ever, they were glued to their devices during class, posting on social media, searching on YouTube. Uh, This year, schools in Ohio, Colorado, Maryland, uh, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Virginia, California, and others banned uh, cell phones uh, to curb student obsession, uh, learning disruption, disciplinary challenges, 
and mental health worries. Most school systems already had a cell phone ban um, bans in 2020, according to U.S. federal data. But the pandemic brought more urgency to places with lenient rules or lax enforcement, according to the Washington Post. Now, in B.C. school districts and uh, and individual school individual schools are responsible for managing students' use of technology, and some have established policies governing the use of phones on school grounds. So it's up to the school district. In many cases up to individual schools as well. Uh, and of course, rules for cell phones in schools vary from province to province. Uh, uh, it's been five months since the secondary school on BC Sunshine Coast uh, has banned uh, cell phone use without uh, permission from administrators and teachers. And so far, they've seen promising results. So the broader conversation about cell phone use in schools uh, is an ongoing one. And I thought it was one that we should perhaps talk, discuss on this show as well. Joining me now is Annie Ohana. She's an Indigenous Department Head, Social Justice Law and Social Sciences teacher at L.A. Matheson Secondary School in Surrey. Annie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I am. Um, I struggle with this, uh, uh, the, the cell phone in schools for kids. Uh, I have a son who's in grade nine. And I got to tell you, it's pretty frustrating as a parent sometimes in regards to uh, getting kids off phones. Uh, Mm -hmm. Generally, you try to be open about it. You try to be flexible about it. Uh, Where do you sit on this issue as an educator? I, I truly appreciate your frustration. I think it's one many teachers share, first of all. And, and secondly, to make it clear that as a teacher, we do have autonomy. So every classroom can look different. As you said, there are many jurisdictions bringing in different forms, different styles, uh, with the Sunshine Coast School being the latest one. Um, so I would say that it really depends. Certainly, we want to have you know, vital, crucial instruction time where students are paying attention and not being distracted by their phones. That being said, I would say that a full ban does provide some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 you often hear, well, they need uh, these uh, uh, phones perhaps for instruction in a school to be used uh, during specific uh, classes. Uh, you know, I, as, as a parent, I'd rather pay more taxes to make sure there's an iPad available for each classroom and they can be taken away or a desktop computer, whatever it may be. I'd feel that is easier for me as a parent because at least that the machines are taken away rather than them then at recess on their phones at lunchtime. Uh, is there a happy medium somewhere there? Because I'm going to assume students uh, in school are using these cell phones uh, when they're in the middle of class for, for specific subjects. Absolutely. And I encourage you to repeat that to the government and the Ministry of Education. Uh, We are critically underfunded and it is a matter of equity. So in the school that I'm in, we are lacking in resources, Uh, you know, absolutely. And so the reality is that the phones become a very vital tool to actually educate, to teach critical media literacy skills, uh, to research. Are there any number of things that these amazing smartphones can do? But at the same time, not every parent can afford a device. And so then to say, well, we just need devices for everybody, that's not quite the answer unless uh, we have that full plentiful funding and resources to keep those you know those um, devices up to date where then every student can have one but in today's world of you know the digital world and you know the need to innovate um, I think more than ever we need to teach self-regulation about phones uh, when to use them appropriately and, and to even have discussions about more problematic realities around cell phone use social media cyberbullying etc all of these are topics that if you take the phone away 
um, you wouldn't have the opportunity to have those conversations necessarily. Um, but is, are we not asking too much of kids in grade 7, grade 8, grade 9 uh, to be able to have these broader conversations, particularly the impact social media can have? Because I find kids get very addicted to Snapchat and they're always on and it takes time, uh, valuable time away uh, from things they should be doing. Number one, interacting uh, with their um, fellow students, never mind learning as well. Um, are we not expecting too much from kids, though, at a grade eight level, level or a grade nine level? Um, I think we are expecting a lot from kids, but at the same time, the world's expecting a lot as well. And so the reality is that we need to teach these skills early. And again, it doesn't mean that we have um, we have a situation. Sorry, I'm actually at an event right now, so my apologies. Um, but it is important that we, we teach these skills at a young age. And that, again, we, we monitor this, right? So we're not saying that cell phones should be out at all times. Mm-hmm. There will be specific moments where the phones come out. And then those conversations can start. But I'll tell you right now, ask the police, ask anybody. Uh, the reality is kids are on their phones at a very young age, even with parental supervision. What impact are you seeing that impact, especially with social media and kids' mental health? I, I really worry about that. I, I just I yeah. have no faith or trust in Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or yeah. Elon Musk at Twitter and Snapchat, whatever it may be. I have little faith yes. in these tech companies to worry about our kids. And give me yeah. a sense of what you're seeing in regards to the impact social media is having on kids. Yeah, I, I absolutely, number one, I have faith in our kids because it's amazing how many students want to put their phone down, right? Mm-hmm. They, they talk often about the mental health impacts, uh, the realities of social media, the lies that are being told, right? Uh, the bullying that's happening. These are things that are coming to us from students. So we truly understand that aspect. So we want to support them in that, right? We want to teach them the right way. We want to help them uh, kind of create those skills. But absolutely, the world of social media is one where it uh, really makes, you know, you're the product, right? So our kids are the product, and that's really problematic. Mm -hmm. So, again, to have these conversations and to really, as teachers, believe me, we're watching for this. And the reality is the mental health issue is paramount, and that needs to be first and foremost. So I just want to clarify your position. You, you don't think there should be an outright ban. We've got to find a happy medium somewhere. Absolutely, yes, because there are equity issues. Uh, there are issues where we do need the phone. So, sure, absolutely. Sorry, I'm in a uh, radio interview. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, I'm so sorry, Jazz. Uh, at the end of the day, it's an equity issue, and it's something where a, a flat-out ban isn't really going to make our education system better, and also it's not going to make necessarily our kids better. I understand they're seeing results, and that's great, but at the same time, at some point you have to have those conversations, and they're going to need to be digitally literate uh, in, in their use of their phones at some point. Yeah. Uh, a teacher's job is never done, Annie, and I totally understand yeah. you're at an event, so not to worry. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. I really yes, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. That, bye. That, that is Annie Johanna. She's an Indigenous Department head, social justice law and social sciences teacher at L.A. Matheson Secondary School in Surrey. Growing development of urban spaces across the world, bat populations in cities are becoming increasingly common. Of course, you can find bats uh, roosting under bridges and vacant buildings and in the trees of parks. But a big part of our everyday lives as city developers, whether we see it or not, the bats are everywhere. They live among us and eat pesky insects. 
But unless you're armed with an ultrasonic microphone, you may never notice our nocturnal neighbors. Uh, UBC researcher Dr. Matthew Mitchell wants to bring these fascinating creatures out of the shadows and will spend the summer collecting data on bats in Vancouver. Uh, Dr. Matthew Mitchell is a research associate and sessional lecturer in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Des. Great to be here. So why do you want to study bats this summer? Well, for, you know, the first reason is the bats are just these amazing, fascinating creatures. Um, I've only been studying them for a few years and just find them really amazing. They're these tiny little creatures that are able to survive on insects and use echolocation. And they're a piece, piece of wildlife that we just don't even know that's around us, as you mentioned earlier. So mm-hmm. that's one of them. The other one is that they're really under threat. They're, you know, we have 16 species of bats in BC, and half of those are threatened with potential loss from the province um, from a variety of sources. Well, let's talk about that for a second. I, I, I was reading that it, it, there's evidence of a deadly fungal disease called white noise syndrome uh, that's been yeah. found here in BC. Is that one of the reasons why they're under threat? That's one. Yeah, that's one of the primary ones across North America. So white nose syndrome is a is a fungus that basically kind of grows on the face and the wings of the bats. It can during when they're hibernating in the winter, it makes them they wake up, they want to groom it off, and they have very little energy stores over the winter, and that can mean that they actually use up those stores and die. Die, and it can actually affect their wings as well. And it was just the fungus that causes that syndrome has just been discovered for the first time in BC, um, in Grand Forks. Oh, in Grand Forks. Is there a part of the province where their uh, bats are more prevalent than others? Um, I'm definitely in the southern part of the province. There, you know, the Okanagan and also even the lower mainland, we have quite a few numbers of bat species. There's 13 um, around Vancouver. You know, they, they are small. You know, the, a, a little brown bat weighs five to eight grams, which is, you know, what is that, three pennies, something like that. So they are really small. So there's less of them as you go north, but they're found all across the province. Mm. How do you study bats when you're out, when you're going to be out and about uh, doing your research? How, how will you be studying them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they're pretty silent. So we use specialized microphones and audio recorders that we set up. They record their ultrasonic calls that they're using to navigate and find food. Uh, and those go, you know, those kind of give us some information on how active are the bats um, and some information about types of bats. And then the other way we'll do it is we're actually going to go out and we'll do what's called mist netting. So we'll capture bats as they fly. Um, we'll take them, we'll do some measurements on them, weigh them, and we'll actually put small, really lightweight uh, radio transmitters on them with the hope of actually finding out where they're roosting and how far they're traveling across the urban landscape. Can we find a lot of bats in our public parks here in Vancouver? Yeah, there's there's quite a few bats. Um, we've been working in some of the urban parks around Vancouver and Burnaby last summer and found quite a lot of bat activity. Um, you know, I work out at UBC and I see bats and hear bats with my microphones out um, there as well. So that there's quite a lot around. Um, they. Uh, Two species, little brown bats and Yuma um, bat, myotis bats, often really like to live in structures as well. Um, so there's quite a lot around in in the Vancouver region. Mm. Is there? Uh, you were saying that we were, we were talking a little bit about the white noise, white nose syndrome. Um, is there any worry of bats going extinct here in British Columbia? I think that in some cases there might be some of that worry. Um, in the east, when this fungus has arrived, some of those species there's 95 to 98 percent loss of some of those populations 
These bats, they have one young per year. They live up to 30 years, but they don't have very many offspring. And so when um, a fungus like this starts um, attacking them, it can really cause large losses. They also face um, pressures from habitat loss and also wind farms as well, um, that really are reducing their population sizes. Now, you're holding, uh, or the or UBC is holding a, a bat walk uh, with UBC Farms, are they not? Yes, that's right, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. And is there still more room if people would be interested in, in, the, in the bat walk? Unfortunately not. It, it sold out very quickly, and we've got a full, uh, full walk. But we're considering maybe putting on some more in the summer, given the, the interest that we've had from the public about this. Well, I, I hope you do, and uh, you let us know, and we'll get that news out for you as well. This sounds like a, a great little event and a great opportunity to, to learn as well. I, I know bats are part of our broader culture, whether it be Batman or a, a, a lot of other issues that we, we we're in and around bats, but we sort of don't localize it enough. And so I'm really glad you're doing this walk and look forward to, to learning from you again after your uh, research project is over. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.